Howdy, folks. Welcome to another edition of TGC Midweek. My name is Jacob, and I just took a final. So if I sound exhausted, <laughs> it's because I am. <laughs> Michael is with me as always. Michael, did you just take a final? I thankfully did not. Man, that was brutal. I'm Corporate glad evaluation. That I have no more finals to take. Tough class. Yeah. H- how did it go? Man, it was okay. It was tough. I was I was done first, which sounds like I'm bragging, but I hate that. Like <laughs> that's the worst when you take a test yes. and you're finished first, and everyone's still there working on uh-huh. it, and you just yeah. So it's a good chance I did a lot of things wrong. Are but, you on summer break, dude? I'm done. This is it. That was it. That was the last. That was my final final. Great. So and what degree did you earn? I am a master of business administration. That's awesome. That means almost nothing, but you know, it's uh-huh. a it's a check on the box. It's a big so, check. Congrats. We're, we're done. I'm exhausted. If you hear it, I apologize. Um, but Dick. we're gonna we're gonna do this podcast, man. Yeah, and uh, well, I'm we, honored to be interviewed by an MBA. <laughs> it's a big deal. It is not seriously that big of a deal. So congratulations, uh, thanks, man. We got some listener questions. A listener question um, that we're gonna hit first. As always, guys, if you have questions, you can send those into Michael at TrinityGraceSA.org or text them anonymously to two one zero nine two zero. 0783. This week's question is an interesting one. It comes from a passage in the Old Testament in Genesis. This question is about an interesting scene where Abraham is visited by three figures identified, at least one of them is identified as the angel of the Lord. And the question is just kind of, who do, who do you think these folks are? Is this um, a theophany? Is this actually uh Jesus pre-incarnate coming as one of these three figures. Why are there three figures? So your thoughts. Yes. Uh, The passage in question is Genesis 18 and 19, where three figures appear to Abraham, and there are three angels, one of them being identified as the angel of the Lord, and the other two remaining nameless in some ways. And it's interesting that they approach Abraham, approach Sarah, and Abraham actually engages with them, specifically engaging with the angel of the Lord. And as he engages with the angel of the Lord, you'll notice in your English Bible that the word Lord is in all caps, which means that it is God's covenant name, Yahweh, um, and identifying this angel with the Lord himself, Mm -hmm. God, uh, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. And uh, the other two angels actually are not identified that way. They're just kind of there. They're there. And uh, and it leads us to believe that they're simply angels accompany uh, the angel of the Lord. In fact, you see at the end of chapter 18 uh, that the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And then at the very beginning of chapter 19, it says the two angels came to to Saddam and Sodom, Sodom, Um, and uh, in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And so these two angels um, are are probably simply angels. Uh, When we see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, uh, most theologians believe that this is a theophany, uh, meaning that it's God temporarily appearing in the form of an angel or the form of a person. Some theologians even think that this is, uh, like you mentioned, a Christophany, mm-hmm. uh, which is a pre-incarnate um, appearance of, uh, of Jesus. Um, and there's nowhere, I, I think, in the Old Testament that would lead us um, to make that conclusion uh, and draw a, a tight line on that or um, a tight argument on that. 
Um, but I do think that you could say that anytime you see the angel of the Lord, or most times you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is indeed God coming and speaking to his people mm-hmm. um, in a face-to-face way. You see this in other times in the Old Testament, too. I think it's in Joshua where it says the angel of the Lord appeared to Joshua during a battle. Yes. Yep. And it's interesting that uh, when you see the angel of the Lord being identified with God, Lord in all caps, um, that's a signal that you're actually dealing with the God of the Bible, Yahweh, in that specific passage. Um, oftentimes you see the angel of the Lord is said to have the power of life, to give life. In Genesis 16.10, um, he's got the power to give life, and only God has that mm-hmm. power. Uh, you see the angel of the Lord oftentimes, Genesis 16.13, he's all-knowing, he's omniscient. Um, and that's attributed uh, to God himself, um, that that characteristic. Uh, in Genesis 18, you see that the angel of the Lord is called the judge of all the earth. Mm. Um, and so that leads us to believe uh, that it's God himself because that title belongs to God alone. So why do the writers write the angel of the Lord and not just the Lord or just Yahweh? That's a great question. And I, I think if I were to guess off the top of my head, um, it would have to uh, do with... Um, how do you understand? Um, it's helping them understand what's happening in this instance, mm-hmm. um, that the angel of the Lord, this is a heightened experience. Um, this is something that doesn't normally happen. Um, and so I think that it's a, a literary device uh, that allows folks flags to rise a little yeah. bit. Um, and I, I can't help but wonder, too, if it has something to do with um, the Ten Commandments. And the fact that uh, they were uh, commanded not to create carved images. Yeah, I was just um, thinking about this because you can't just write it and say the Lord because then it would almost it would almost uh, unintentionally kind of produce this picture of of God as uh, something concrete or something sure. definite. Yes, if that makes sense. So I think all those things go into it. Um, I don't have a, an airtight answer for that mm-hmm. question. Um, but the last thing I, I'd uh, comment on is when you see the angel of the Lord, oftentimes he receives worship. Uh, he never deflects that worship away from him, which also leads us to believe that this is God himself mm-hmm. appearing uh, to people face to face. Yeah. So just to kind of sum all this up, we would say that um, these three kind of mysterious figures that appear to Abraham would be God and then just simply two angels because the one kind of seems to be central to this whole episode, and then the two are kind of subsidiary. Yep, and if you read Genesis 18 and 19, you'll see that to be the case, that there's one main character uh, Mm -hmm. identified as the angel of the Lord, and the two other angels that are with him after the angel of the Lord leaves actually stay with Lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's an interesting story in Genesis 19 where uh, the men of uh, uh, Sodom come and want to actually have relations, sexual relations with these two angels. And that's what ends. uh, That basically uh, leads God to destroy this city. Yeah. Very interesting. I I like these stories because they kind of put the, they're a little bit spooky, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but they kind of take the old, these old Testament stories in our minds, they kind of remove the sort of storybook Bible version that we were often raised with and sort of put the kind of the, the I don't know, it's heavier. And mm-hmm. It kind of reminds you that this is heavy, heavy stuff. Yes. And there's some deep mysteries that we have to kind of think about. Yep. It is definitely not clean. Depravity is uh, is on, on these pages. Oh, yeah. Uh, and <clears throat> you can't get away from it. That is right. So um, let's move in now to the second part 
of our evangelism series. So last week we talked about sort of the why behind evangelism and why it's important for us to witness our faith to, to other folks and share the gospel with other folks. Let's talk a little bit now about uh, the hows of evangelism. What do you think about this? Yeah, I think there's a few presuppositions that we've got to bring to the table when we think about evangelism, uh, too specifically. The first is, do you believe the message is important enough to share? Mm. Uh, is the message, has it impacted you and your life in such a way that you feel like you have to get out there and share it with others? Yeah. Um, I think that's uh, the first uh, question that you've got to ask yourself when it comes to evangelism. Uh, and the second question that kind of um, comes next is, do you have a relationship with non-Christians, with people that actually need to hear mm -hmm. this message? And I think in our circles, I can speak for myself from experience. Sometimes I look around and it's hard for me to actually um, see myself engaging on a regular basis with those who would not claim to follow Jesus. Mm. And if that's the case, then it's going to be really hard for me to evangelize and share the gospel because I'm not engaged with people that are actually looking for that. Yeah. Um, and so those are two uh, just questions that you need to ask right off the bat. Is the message important to you? And do you actually know non-Christians? Do you know the hopes and the dreams of those people, their fears and their struggles? Are we able to, and I love how Blaise Pascal put it, when he said, share with them a story that they wish were true and then tell them that it is. Mm. Um, I love that idea of what evangelism is, engaging with non-Christians, sharing with them a story that they wish were true, and then being able to tell them that it is. Yeah. So let's say that we've answered yes to both those questions, that yes, the message is important to us, and yes, we are surrounded daily by, by non-Christians. What are the various means by which we share that message? Yeah, I, I think of, um, you know, there's a few different ways that just come to mind about how we can share this message. And you've likely seen them in your life. You've seen tracks before uh, where folks actually hand out small pamphlets um, and they might have the four spiritual laws uh, on those pamphlets or an explanation of what the gospel is. Mm -hmm. um, and so that must yield like tens of converts. <laughs> It definitely is. Uh, it, it's a, a means of evangelism that I think is uh, dying out. Does that include the billboards with the one eight hundred number? That's interesting. <laughs> I, you see a lot of billboards these days, and so yeah. maybe it's not dying like I think it is. Um, and so that would be uh, those folks that buy billboard ads that we see even driving down I ten and I thirty five. Um, they believe that they're engaged in evangelism, and mm -hmm. I guess you could say that they are. Mm -hmm. That's a, a method of evangelism that they've decided to pour their resources into. You see camps, you see crusades, you see street preaching. All of these are methods of evangelism. Um, the, the method that I gravitate towards, though, um, is uh, what I would term relational evangelism. And by highlighting relational evangelism, I'm basically talking about a way of being, not doing. Okay. Evangelism isn't something that you necessarily do. Um, it's, uh, it's more incorporated into your everyday life. Um, and so it's a lifestyle, not a method. It's being intentional with how you love other people. It's enjoying other people. It's recognizing that evangelism is not uh, a deal that has to be sealed in uh, one conversation, it's a process uh, oftentimes. In fact, I heard today 
and I don't know the source of this. I heard a, a preacher mention it, um, that in the United Kingdom, um, research has been done that it takes at least 25 exposures or touches with the gospel mm-hmm. for somebody to even start to consider the claims of the gospel. Mm. And um, that rings true to me, um, that evangelism is a process and like we mentioned last week, it's living contact with God and living contact with people. And so in relational evangelism, your job is to know and experience God's deep love for you and then to really move out and live and speak out of an overflow of that love. And it really keeps it authentic. Yeah, You're not treating people as projects or uh, knowledge downloads. Um, you're treating them as people that are made in the image of God, that are intrinsically valuable, that are interesting, um, and that have deep needs. And so um, it also frees you up a little bit in terms yeah. of feeling the pressure to uh, to make the sale in so, one. Yeah. Sale. So we should almost rephrase the question. And, and it, it, the question is not so much what does it look like to evangelize, but instead it's what does it look like to live like an evangelist? Sure. That's a great way to put it. Um, what does it look like to live as a follower of Jesus mm-hmm. even? Um, what does it look like just to live authentically and have this message be so important to you that you can't help but share it? Yeah. It's a little cheesy in my mind sometimes, um, but I think it's a good analogy to think about what we're passionate about in life. If you're passionate about the San Antonio Spurs, you talk a lot about the San Antonio Spurs. It just comes up Mm. naturally in everyday conversation. And I don't use that analogy to shame anyone, um, but I think it, it just hits on the fact that we generally talk about what's important to us and we find ways to slip it into everyday conversation. Now, it's not as easy when we're talking about religion and Christianity and the gospel. I understand that, but it's a great way to kind of start thinking about it at least. Yeah, that can very quickly take a casual lunch with friends and do a direction. It's easier to talk about the Spurs than, you know, what are the two topics you don't bring up at Thanksgiving, politics and religion? Yep, yep. You can talk about the Spurs all day long. (laughs) This is why I'm bad at small talk because... I like to talk about politics and religion. So <laughs> I'm you, horrible. You shut her down pretty fast. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> okay. So um, if we're gonna if we're gonna focus on living like an evangelist and not not so much thinking of evangelism something that we do, um, there's probably a lot that we should consider about uh, the heart of the messenger and just kind of the condition that we need to be in and how we need to do that. Yes. And I think there's a few few things to keep in mind when you think about your heart as the messenger. And the first I kind of mentioned a few minutes ago is we've got to see everybody as made or uh, in the image of God. Uh, Everybody is made in the Imago Dei. Um, And so uh, that means that uh, my neighbors that don't yet claim to follow Jesus uh, have something intrinsically good about them. In fact, a lot of times non-Christians can be more moral Um, and more upright than Christians. Uh, They might be better husbands or better businessmen or women uh, or better mothers uh, than Christians are because they're made in God's image and they still have a lot of inherent good left uh, in them. Now, obviously, we would say that when it comes to salvation, we're all dead in our sin Mm -hmm. uh, and we have no ability to choose God. Um, But when it comes to morality, uh, it's important to understand that everybody's made in the image of God. And there's still lots of things that can be commended in everybody. Yeah, um, that's a huge distinction to make between the salvation question and sure. the, um, the sort of horizontal free will kind of question. People get those confused all the time, and it leads to all kinds of different yes topics. But yeah, it, that's a, it that's is a important, important distinction. distinction to make. I appreciate you mentioning the importance of it. Um, 
The other thing I think about when I think about uh, the heart of the messenger, and you hear these terms used a lot, these three terms I'm about to use in public speaking classes, but I think it applies to evangelism. Uh, and the three words, uh, anytime you're uh, seeking to convey a message, three things that you've got to keep in mind are your ethos, your pathos, and your logos. Um, and basically what this means is your ethos uh, is who you are, your character, and it matters. Mm-hmm. Um, your words in your life have to match when it comes to what you say. Um, and so it lends a certain amount of credibility to your message. If I'm preaching one thing but living another way, it's going to neutralize the message that I'm trying to convey. And so there's got to be an ethos about the person. Um, their words and their lifestyle have to match. There also needs to be a a certain degree of pathos, which is emotional engagement. Um, So people see that you believe the message and that it matters to you, and that's very important. Basically, are you buying what you're trying to sell? Um, And if you're not, people can sense that very quickly. Um, And so if you're not emotionally engaged in the message itself, then you're negating what you're trying to do. And then lastly, logos is really just the logical content of what you're trying to convey. What you say um, is the logical content of the message. Um, Does it make sense to people? Um, And so when you combine all of these three characteristics of trying to get a message across, um, I think it's it's helpful when you think about how we engage in evangelism. Mm hmm. Boy, you can tell that I went to school in Texas because I was taught ethos, pathos, and logos. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm sitting here going, "What is logos? What I've never even heard of." Yeah. Oh, logos. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. You I, might you might be saying it right. I might be saying it wrong. Oh, who knows? Um, They're Greek words, so that's how you'd pronounce them in yeah, the Greek. You know, we're winging it. But um, so all this, I think, just kind of, you can kind of sum it up in that you have to have integrity within the Christian meth, uh, message because. Integrity basically means that all of your parts are working together for the same purpose. Your car has integrity when all of the parts and components and systems and subsystems are working together Mm. for the purpose of the car, which is to move forward and get you to your destination. And so you as a person have integrity when, um, your, uh, your character and your, the way that you act that they align, right? That's the ethos, ethos. And, the thing that you're claiming invokes some kind of passion in you. That's the pathos. If any of these things are broken, then you're not acting with integrity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to to put it. And uh, you might not pronounce those words right, but I don't pronounce Sodom right. <laughs> I wanted to say Sodom. Saddam. Saddam. Yeah, it's Sodom, not Saddam. So yep, yep. anyway, we all have our quirks when it comes yep. to uh You've got that language. one and especially. Especially. So, <laughs> so we're good. Um, okay, so we've talked about the means of the message, the heart of the messenger. Um, is there a particular manner by which we should convey this message to the people that we're living relationally with? Yeah, I think um, the manner is uh, is kind of what I hit on uh, just a minute ago, but there are some principles that I'd love to touch on um, that maybe the manner, you know, we talked about the manner, let's flow into some of these, uh, the principles to keep in mind. First is, I think it's important to, uh, to remember that we're not called to condemn unbelievers. Yeah. Um, we're called to live with them. Um, but most of us, if we grow up in the church, we assume that condemning the sins around us is exactly what we're called to do as Christians. And we're often ones dragging non-believers before Jesus for judgment and condemnation. And that's not what we're called mm-hmm. to do. Um, and so uh, we don't condemn unbelievers. 
um, we've got to see our own sin first. Uh, we've got to see ourselves in deep need of God's mercy and grace um, before we can move out and offer that mercy and grace to others. In fact, the more we know we need it, uh, the better the manner that we're going to take it out to mm-hmm. others uh, in, I believe. Um, we've got to demonstrate mercy and love. We can't separate from sinners. Um, we've got to be uh, kind to the ungrateful and the evil person in our life, just like our Father in heaven is kind to the unrighteous. And so we can imitate God and His general goodness and kindness to our neighbors and our friends that don't claim to follow Him, because God welcomes them into this world, uh, the one that He made and that He owns. And here's the thing, God is not compromised by sin in the world, and neither are we compromised when we relate with people who ignore righteous direction for Mm -hmm. human life. Um, we can be compromised if we're not careful and we begin to engage in behaviors that are inappropriate, but simply being around sinners, Jesus was around sinners yeah. and tax collectors a lot. In fact, he got the, um, uh, the, uh, tag of being a drunkard, mm. um, in the gospels because he was hanging out with, uh, with sinners and tax collectors so much, um, and we've got to make the gospel attractive. And then lastly, we've got to call unbelievers to the gospel and obedience. And here's where I think relational evangelism gets a bad rap because it can let us off the hook uh, of actually making a call to mm-hmm. embrace something. Um, and so when the time is appropriate, we've got to call sinners to a life of obedience to God's commandments without condemnation. Um, we've got to ask them what they believe about what they've heard. Um, we've got to kind of step out there and take a risk when it comes to uh, evangelism um, and not simply sit on our hands and use the excuse that we're doing relational evangelism so we don't really ever have to ask the hard questions. Yeah. Or, that, that can't really be an excuse for laziness. Sure. Um, but how – okay, so how do you do that? Because if we're – you said it once, we're not to condemn unbelievers because they're not in Christ. We should look to our own sin first. But then how do we, how do we call them to obedience to God's commandments? Because I, I don't know, the way that I'm thinking about this is that calling a person who doesn't understand the gospel to obedience to the law doesn't make any sense. But at the same time, the gospel is not an attractive message unless a person is deeply convi- like. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, it, golly, what's convicted. the word? Con- convicted. There, yep. Thank you. Convi- I told you I took a final. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All I was thinking of is cash flow, not convicted. So, <laughs> But how can a person understand the gospel if they're not convicted by the, the law? So the, it's sure. almost circular. You have to argue the gospel to someone who's stuck in the law, but you have to argue the law to someone for them to understand the beauty of the gospel. So which one do I do first? Yeah. You know, I, I think in, in some ways the law uh, can drive people to Christ because they realize how far short they fall of uh, meeting the standards that God has set out for them. On the other hand, I also think that the law can paint uh, the picture of the beautiful life. Mm-hmm. Like what Blaise Pascal said, tell people a story that they wish were true and then let them know that it is. Um, a lot of times... Um, The beauty of the law, I think, can be um, attractive uh, to nonbelievers. And so sharing uh, kind of the the positives uh, of the law, the beauty of the law, this is how you were created to live. This is how you live according to your design. These are phrases that I really like. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, and using those 
ideas as springboards into asking people, what do you think about that? Uh, does that make sense? Does it ring true? Um, I think asking a lot of questions yeah. is the way to go when it comes to relational evangelism. In fact, I, I used to say for seven years on campus, I use the Socratic method most of the time mm-hmm. where I'm not downloading propositions on people, but I'm asking good questions that are attempting to get to the heart motivations that allow the person across the table from me to come to their own conclusions. It's almost like leading somebody with questions, but in the most appropriate way, Mm -hmm. Um, not not quizzing them for the right answers, but asking them probing questions and allowing them to articulate their beliefs out loud and then running with that. Well, what do you mean by um, what you just said? Or... Um, does anything that I'm saying about the goodness and the beauty of God ring true to your own heart mm-hmm. and allow those kind of conversations to happen? And this is where relational evangelism, I think, really is beautiful because I can leave a conversation like that and be okay without them having accepted Jesus into their heart, which if you look at the New Testament, um, in, in, in the New Testament, you don't ever see, um, the sinner's prayer being prayed. Mm-hmm. You do see people coming to uh, confess and repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. Um, But I I think that sometimes in our evangelistic world, we think that if I'm not praying with somebody and they're not receiving Jesus in this moment, then I've failed in some ways. I will say when I was doing ministry on campus, I am convinced that people were converted from death to life, but it did not come um, at least and how I perceived it in an instantaneous moment. Now, I do believe that they were converted and justified, and God knows a certain day and time when that happened, but they might not be able to point back Mm -hmm. to that day and time. They just found themselves coming to the services that we were putting on on campus, and I think slowly but surely they looked up one day and said, I believe this. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a more normative way for people to place their faith in Jesus than we think it is. Sure. And it's an okay way. Uh, it doesn't have to be an instantaneous moment that you can write in the you know sleeve of your Bible. Oh, yeah. Although that's <laughs> great if that happens. That actually happened to me. I mean, I can remember the exact day yeah. and time, and it was on the sleeve of my Bible when I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I just think it's not that way for everybody, mm-hmm. and it's not a great paradigm to place on everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so what kind of barriers are there to this kind of evangelism? Um, as as you had worked in, on college campuses and stuff, what, what kind of barriers have you encountered? Sure. I mean, there's uh, there's a few that, that come to mind. One is just people-pleasing. You don't share the message because of fear that uh, the relationship is going to end if that person responds negatively. And so I worry if I'm going to be liked after I share the gospel. Am I going to be invited back uh, to spend time with these people? And we've got to remember that whether someone accepts or rejects our message, it doesn't make us more or less valuable. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are messengers that are sent out to carry this message of something that's happened in real time and real space. And doesn't the Bible say, too, that like some reap and then others sow? So there's a lot of like... I, I think there's a lot of folks sometimes who are so focused on trying to close the deal and they treat it like a sales lunch yep, or something. Absolutely. And, and I remember this uh, story too. When I was, uh, when Caleb was young, probably uh, four or five years ago, I was driving him to soccer practice one day and he's sitting in the back uh, seat in his car seat and I'm up front driving. And he exclaimed out of nowhere, There's one person in the world I hate. 
And I was like, that's interesting. Who? And he said, Satan. I hate <laughs> Satan. And I said, that's good. And then he exclaimed, I love two things in the world. And it was so interesting. It was just out of the blue. And I said, what are those things, buddy? And he said, sports and worshiping God. <laughs> and I said, that's great, buddy, from the front seat. But I should have been really happy yeah, with that. That's a, that's a huge moment. Um, but my mind began to wonder what would happen if he says those things at practice. And I think that's where the whole people-pleasing barrier kind of reared its ugly head. Yeah. It was like, this is so sweet in our car, and I'm so glad that you hate Satan, and you love to worship God, and you love sports. But don't say that out loud, Mm. Um, which is the complete wrong mentality to have. Yeah. So people-pleasing is a barrier. I think comfort can be a barrier. We don't share the message because it costs us time and resources it costs us anxiety and it costs us awkwardness. Oh yes, which Tons is a commodity. Of yeah, um, and so um, yeah, it just it, it, the comfort level uh, is at zero uh, when you're engaged in an evangelistic effort, and that's okay because it really forces you to rely on the Lord and His strength and His power in your life. I think the other thing that comes to mind, the other barrier is uh, self righteousness, just moralism mm-hmm. and legalism. So we don't share the message because we've got no patience for sin. We're always comparing and judging um, and looking down on others. And if we're honest, most of us really just lack a genuine love for the lost. Uh, we like to know there are people out there that are worse than us. Yeah. And so that can lead us uh, to uh, keep from evangelism. And then the last uh, barrier uh, that comes to mind is control. When it comes to evangelism, we can't control the conversation. We can't predict what's going to be said. Oh, yeah. We can't predict the questions that are going to come at us. And sometimes we just have to say, I don't know the answer to that. And sometimes it's just flat rejection without any second (laughs) second thing. So so those are barriers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you have any like practical tips uh, for people? One thing I'm I'm particularly curious in is when you're doing this relational uh, uh, evangelism, you mentioned that. At a certain time, there's an appropriate time to sort of mm-hmm. kind of dig in and and always be closing sort of thing. But um, how do you identify what the, when that time is? Yep. And then what's the method to to sure. take from there? Yeah, I think that those times can uh, pop up uh, throughout the course of a relationship. And so, if somebody opens the door, I, I like to think of it this way: if somebody opens the door for me to speak into their life with the gospel, then I want to walk through that door. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to get all the way to where I would like us to go, but it's small little conversation door openings um, that I'm able to walk through. Um, and I think about it as uh, kind of chatting your faith, mm-hmm. um, taking those opportunities as they arise, keeping it low-key and natural and conversational, um, remembering that it's a dialogue, not a download, and taking the opportunity to actually speak and dialogue when given that opportunity, yeah. um, I think is important. I always think that I want to bother someone mm-hmm. <laughs> with this just enough um, that they'll ask questions about it later on. Sure. Yeah. And then who doesn't like to be asked questions? I think that we um, underestimate how much people might be receptive to some of the questions that we would ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're genuinely curious, I think that it opens the door to some opportunities for them to turn around and ask you the same question you just asked them. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that happens. 
Um, it's not just you hitting the tennis ball and never getting uh, uh, the tennis ball hit back to you in, in a conversation with somebody. Um, some practical suggestions that come to mind, though, are we've got to pray. Um, it's God who changes hearts. It's not us. I don't care if you are a master apologist, if the Holy Spirit is not at work in the other person's heart. Yeah. It doesn't matter how great your argument or how great your apologetics are. Um, God is the one that has to change hearts. Someone told me once that no one was ever argued into faith. Mm, yeah, totally. Um, it can help, but if the Spirit's not at work, it, it's useless. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to get involved. And so I think a ways for us to get involved in the suburbs of San Antonio, if your kids are in school, it's a great way to get involved and get to know other parents. Um, sports leagues, uh, your work, your neighbors— all of these are avenues uh, for us to actually rub shoulders with folks who might not know Jesus. And so getting involved in coaching sports and being involved in your kid's school and in um, throwing neighborhood parties and inviting neighbors to dinner is, is huge. Um, you've got to listen. You've got to ask good questions. Um, and then you've got to serve others. Uh, oftentimes you have to earn the right to be heard. Yeah. And so if you can serve others, uh, oftentimes they might uh, ask you why you're doing what you're doing, and then you get a chance to speak. Sure. Do you have any other practical tips when it comes to evangelism? Yeah, something that's been helpful, and I'll just end with this, I think, is Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of evangelism and fruitfulness and the analogy of a farmer um, and and, um, farmer and fruitfulness. And it's helpful as we think about uh, the message and how we take it out and the response that we see. So really, there's four aspects at play in sharing the good news, if you think about it through this analogy. Um, first, you've got the faithfulness of the farmer, and this is basically the farmer getting up every day and heading to the field, basically going to work, mm-hmm. um, not sleeping in, not missing a day or skipping a week. Um, so that's the first aspect. The second aspect of th- is the skill of the farmer. Um, what the farmer knows and the experience that he has on the farm is really important, and he can grow in his skill and work on his skill and hone his craft. Um, and so that's the second aspect of this analogy. The third aspect is the quality of the soil. And so is it fertile soil or is it hard ground? Um, are you in uh, the Midwest? Are you down here in San Antonio where the soil is made of clay? It's hard to grow things uh, where, the, where the ground is hard. And then lastly, um, the last, um, I guess, uh, variable know, variable is weather. Thank you. Um, is the weather conducive to growth or is there a drought? And this is really the spirit at play, um, is the Holy Spirit active. Um, And so if you think about it, you can play with this some. You could say you're the most faithful person evangelist ever. You get up every day thinking about how you're going to share the gospel with your friends and your neighbors, and you're pretty skilled at it too. You know how to ask good questions. You know how to um, provoke people's thought and draw uh, hope and beauty out of their hearts. But the quality of the soil might be horrible, and the spirit, the weather might not be Mm. um, at work and you could experience no fruit in your evangelistic efforts. But then you could flip it the other way and say, you're the most unfaithful evangelist that's ever lived. You've got no skill when it comes to asking good questions and with relating to non-believers. but the quality of the soil is so good, it's so ripe, and the Spirit is so at work that you experience major evangelistic fruit. And I've just found this a great analogy to run through in my mind um, in different maybe relationships or situations. Um, And there's really two variables that we can control. Are we faithful and are we growing in our skill? Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes we strike upon great soil. 
and the Spirit's at work and we experience revival or, or evangelistic fruit. Other times the soil isn't as good and the weather is not there and it's not our fault. All we can do is keep on waking up and keep improving our skill. So sure. that's been helpful for me as I've thought about evangelism and ministry over the years. All right. Um, well, those are some good, some good tips. What we really tried to do today, guys, was to kind of zoom in and get a little bit granular around the how of evangelism. Next week, we're going to zoom out and kind of take a 30,000 foot view and look at the general um, approaches or models of, of evangelism or just relating to the world that uh, the church has used and continues to use um, just generally. And we'll kind of dissect those a little bit. Um, but if you have questions, always send those in. Um, text them to 210-920-0783, or you can email Michael. Email your questions in about any topic that you'd like, any questions about evangelism. We'll save those to probably two weeks from now, and we'll reserve a whole day just to go through all the questions that you've sent in um, around evangelism. So until next time, guys, this has been Trinity Grace Midweek, and we'll see you next week.